I want to welcome everyone here. I want to uh, today talk about the signs in the Olivet Discourse and how they are found not in the church age, but in the 70th week of Daniel. And I want to explain why I think that's significant. For some months now, I've been concerned with Christians who are claiming, for example, that it would be wrong to take the vaccine. And that's just one example. Why? Because they're concerned about taking the mark of the beast. Well, the mark of the beast is something that occurs within Daniel's 70th week. And we are going to be exempt from that time period uh, by the rapture. The other thing I've seen people concerned with as Christians is over the years, people will say, well, certain earthquakes must be building in intensity in order for the Lord to come, or certain signs regarding wars have to happen before the Lord would come. But what I want to do is lay out for you this new paradigm where all of the signs are not in the church age that we're living in but are in what's called the parousia, the coming of Christ, or that seven-year window that is, in fact, the coming of Christ, known as Daniel's 70th week. Now, let me cite to you a couple of passages from the Apostle Paul. You don't have to turn there, but if you're a note-taker, just jot these down. Think about this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Listen to what Paul said. He said, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Notice there, Paul, the apostle, uses the first person plural, we. The apostle Paul believed that he could, he wasn't certain, but that he could be part of the rapture at Jesus Christ, parousia, his coming. Okay, now let me give you another passage, lest you think maybe that's just a one-off, and perhaps uh, when he was writing First Thessalonians, he had a hiccup or something by the Spirit. Well, Philippians 3.20 Paul says this, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we, again, first person plural, eagerly wait our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, there's multiple passages where Paul expected that he at least could be in the generation that was raptured. In fact, the great scholar, Robert Thomas, he said it this way, he said, this is a scholar from Master Seminary, he said, quote, Paul was personally looking forward to the Lord's return. And he says, this was not some pious pretense perpetrated for the good of the church. He sincerely lived and labored in anticipation of the day, but he did not know when it would come. So here's what I want you to think about. The apostle Paul believed that he could be raptured, that the Lord could come at any moment in his life, and yet there was no vaccine mandates. There was no computers in his day. There was no artificial intelligence. There was no Russian military uh, threatening the borders of Israel. There was no Chinese military. There was no artificial intelligence able to track human movement or chips that could be implanted in people. Uh, there was no drones that could uh, track people in the world. And yet he believed that the coming of Christ was imminent. Now, the reason I think this is important to get down is I think traditionally most Christians have placed the signs that Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse. And by the way, the Olivet Discourse is the longest running discourse in the entirety of the New Testament, apart from the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so it's exceedingly important. If we don't understand the Olivet Discourse, we will not understand our eschatology. So what I wanna invite everyone to do is to have a paradigm shift in their mind, where you understand that the signs Jesus is referring to are not signs that we will see during the church age, but rather they are signs that are reserved for people within the last seven years so that they can persevere 
through that difficult time, okay? Now, one of the things I wanna show you on this screen here is this is called the 70th week view. I believe all the signs are within the last seven years. Now, remember the 70th week in Daniel chapter nine, God had revealed through Daniel the prophet that there'd be a 490 years until Israel's restoration as a kingdom. The first 483 of those years were fulfilled at Jesus' first coming. The last seven years are still in the future. And the last seven years incorporates Jesus' second coming. When you and I talk about the first coming of Christ, we're not talking about one day. We're talking about 30-some years of his life, not just the day that he was incarnate or uh, was conceived in the, in the womb of Mary. Okay. In the same way, the second coming is conceived as a seven-year window where Christ comes for the church, the beginning. He pours his wrath out and he comes with the church at the end to set up his kingdom. And so when we look at the view, the 70th week view of how signs are incorporated by Jesus, what I, my claim is, is that there are no signs to tip a person off as to when the 70th week comes, but there are signs inside the 70th week to edify and prepare those who come to faith in Christ during this time. Now, the way this is structured, it's interesting. Matthew liked to incorporate what he called chiasms. And I'm going to show you one right here, what that is. There was a question the disciples asked as Jesus had told them about the destruction of the temple. And because they were up on the Mount of Olives, they had reasoned that he must be referring to the end of the age, that final battle that's depicted in Zechariah 14, where all of the nations will surround Jerusalem. And so they asked him the first question in Matthew 24, 3 was, well, when will these things be? And they asked, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, the end of the age, they assumed would happen when he came. So that's really one question. So what I want you to think about is there's really two parts or two questions. When will these things be? And what is the sign of your coming? What I'm going to show you is the way the Olivet Discourse is structured, and we'll see grammatical clues later on. That would be our next message we'll be getting into. But you'll see that the signs are inside the 70th week, and that's what Jesus covers here. From verse 4 of Matthew 24 all the way to Matthew 24, 35, he is talking about signs all within the 70th week. Not outside of it, not during the church age, but all are within it. And what question is he answering? What's the sign of your coming? And he gives multiple signs. The biggest sign is himself coming in the clouds of glory at the end of the 70th week to destroy the enemy surrounding Jerusalem and to bring in his kingdom. That's the greatest sign of all. Okay. Now, what he's going to do then in verse 36 to the end of the chapter, notice in blue, is he'll answer the question, when? When is the start of the 70th week? And we'll find that it's unknowable. In fact, about eight different ways, Jesus says you can't know. No one knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, neither the son, only the father. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make this very simple. I thought about a way to make this very easy to understand. And what I thought is, let's look at five different proofs that we can look to that really prove the signs that Jesus gives within the all of the discourse are all inside the 70th week and not in the church age. So let me give you all five of these. I'll pull them up. The first one is we're going to see in Matthew 24, 4 through 8, Jesus begins answering the question, what are the signs? And what he's going to allude to is something called birth pangs 
That term birth pangs that you see on the screen is a critical term for every Christian to understand. If we don't understand the idea of birth pangs, we're really not understanding eschatology. Why? Because birth pangs was a technical expression for the future day of the Lord. Okay. So why is that important? Because when Jesus is alluding to birth pangs, he's certainly not alluding to the church age, but the day of the Lord, which is comprised of both salvation of God's people, but also his wrath being poured out upon his enemies. Okay. And I'll make a connection between these birth pangs in the book of Isaiah 13, verse 8. Okay, second, the second proof that the signs Jesus gives are within the 70th week, not in the church age that we're living now, is in verses 9 through 14, Jesus describes the great tribulation. Now, this great tribulation is great because it's the last three and a half years in which the Antichrist will use his forces to persecute the people of Israel. So bad is that time period that in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, it's called the time of Jacob's great distress. In fact, it's so bad that according to Revelation chapter 12, Israel is going to have to be removed into the wilderness again by God to protect them from extinction. That's the time period Jesus is talking about in those verses. So by the time you get to the end of verse 14, he's brought you all the way to the end of the 70th week and a grand overview. But then by way of recapitulation, he's going to give us the third sign, which is the abomination of desolation. Now, when does the abomination of desolation occur? Well, it occurs at the midpoint of the 70th week of the seven-year period. That's when the Antichrist desecrates the temple. He sets himself up as being God in the temple, and he turns his wrath, and again, it's the wrath of God through him, upon the people of Israel. Okay, why? Because they had missed the first advent. They go through the time of Jacob's great distress. So that's at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. Again, right away, we see that all of these signs are not in the church age, but in the last seven years. The fourth indicator is in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, Jesus describes the worst time period ever. And I mentioned this years ago when I was teaching eschatology, you can only have one worst time period. You can't have the worstest, okay? You only have one worst. And the worst is not going to ever be superseded. It's not, there's not going to be something that's worse than the worst. Well, Jesus is describing the worst time period ever. He says, in fact, if those no, days not be cut short, no flesh would survive. Well, we have to ask ourselves, are the worst days ever in the church age? Is, is God pouring his wrath upon the church in the church age? Or is it going to be in the 70th week of Daniel? I think it's obvious it's the latter. Okay, let me give you a fifth time period indicator. And that's when we get to Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Jesus describes the final battle surrounding Jerusalem. Okay, now that final battle is at the end of the 70th week, right at the end. Now, of course, then he's describing the events within the 70th week, not in the church age that we're living in now. Now, when you get to verses 32, all the way to verse 35, that brings us to Jesus ending the, answering the question of the signs. What are the signs? And that's where he gives you a simple parable of the fig tree. The fig tree simply says, hey, you can tell the season by looking at a fig tree. You can certainly tell where you are in the tribulation period by looking at what the Lord has brought about as the tribulation period unwinds through the signs. Okay, now what I want to talk about is Matthew 24, 29. Again, the fifth sign 
Notice it says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. I want everyone to stop there and consider the phrase those days. If you think the phrase those days refers to the church age, you're going to be in left field your entire life and you will never understand eschatology. You won't understand the data. But if you properly understand those days are referring to the 70th week of Daniel, why? Because that's just what he's described. Notice all the five indicators. If you understand the tribulation of those days is a reference to the 70th week of Daniel, then you're going to be cooking with gas. Then you're going to understand eschatology in the whole of the New Testament, as far as eschatology is concerned, will really come alive for you. Okay, notice what he said, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. By the way, everything that you see in bold there, or I should say in all caps, that's a reference to the final battle alluded to in Joel chapter three. The final battle at the end of the 70th week where the nations surround Jerusalem and the Messiah comes. Notice from these things will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There'll be cosmic disturbances in this time. So what I'm gonna do for the remainder of our session, I'll go through about 50 minutes, then I'm gonna open it up to questions and answers for everyone. What I'm gonna do is just go one by one through each of these. We'll start with the first one, the idea of birth pains. The, the idea of labor pains, birth pains, is something that we have to see as Christians that is associated with the day of the Lord. By the way, anytime you see D-O-L, that's what I mean by D-O-L is day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was a period that the Lord had prophesied in the Old Testament in which he would finally and forever save his people. They would be secure. We would never die anymore. We'd be given our resurrection. We'd be given our kingdom. But the day of the Lord is also a time period where he would pour his wrath upon his enemies. And this time period is conceived as a broad period of time, beginning with the rapture and the inception of the 70th week of Daniel, and it extends, according to 2 Peter 3.10, into eternity, even with the destructions, the destruction of the old heaven and the old earth. When we get the new heavens and new earth, that's all part of the day of the Lord. So what I want you to see is that's associated with something called labor pains in the Old Testament. We'll see that in Isaiah 13.8. In fact, in Isaiah 13, 8, in the Greek Septuagint, the prophet Isaiah used a term referring to the day of the Lord. He used labor pains. In the Greek Septuagint, it's Odin. I want you to remember that, Odin. If you're to transliterate it from English, excuse me, from Greek to English, it would be simply O-D-I-N. Okay, but it's pronounced, I think, Odin. All right, that's labor pain. Right now, the reason that's important is Jesus is going to borrow from that 8th century prophet Isaiah and he's going to use the same term, Odin, labor pains, when he summarizes the first three and a half years of the last seven years or the 70th week of Daniel. He talks about the first part of it as labor pain, Odin. So the idea that the Jews had is that you and I in the last days or the church age are living during a pregnancy. But when the 70th week of Daniel comes, it's like labor pains upon a woman and they would go for seven years. And after that seven years, what would be birthed would be the messianic kingdom. Here, once you and I are not living during the labor pains, we're living during the discomforts of the pregnancy, but we have not gone into labor. That's the 70th week of Daniel. That's how it was conceived. Okay. So Jesus is going to be using the same term. Now, what's interesting about that is the apostle Paul takes 11, I say again, 11 terms 
from Jesus all of a discourse when he teaches about labor pains. And he's going to link the labor pains to the day of the Lord, just like Isaiah 13, 8 does. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because it shows us that the labor pains that are being referred to is, in fact, a reference to the day of the Lord. If you and I think the signs Jesus is referring to is in the church age, well, then the church age would be the day of the Lord. And if the church age is the day of the Lord, then the wrath of God is being poured out now, and God is a liar. Because God promised in Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and Revelation 3, 10, that you and I would not see the wrath of God. That as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, Jesus would come and rescue us from the wrath to come. Okay, so that's why we can't be present for that time period. All right, and that's why we know these labor pains is a reference to the day of the Lord, things within the 70th week of Daniel. Let me show you where this all comes from. Isaiah 13, 6 through 8. Notice right away, this is 715 BC, right around that era. And Isaiah says this, he's talking about the day of the Lord. He says, for the, the day of the Lord is near. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. Now, I want you to notice here this term pains. That's the term labor pains. And again, it comes from the Greek Septuagint, the Greek term odin. The same term Jesus will use in Matthew 24, 8. Now, why is Isaiah's reference so important that he's mentioning the same thing Jesus does, odin or labor pains? Because he says it's the day of the Lord. Okay, so in the opening verses, I think from Isaiah 13, verse 1, all the way to around verse 16, you have Isaiah describing the future day of the Lord, okay? Well, then what he does from verse 17 all the way to verse 22, he talks about the destruction of Babylon that would be in his future, in the near future, okay? Now, why am I saying that? Because the beginning of Isaiah 13, what we're reading from right on the screen, is about the future day of the Lord. It's still in our future, and so Isaiah the prophet in the 8th century was prophesying about days that are still in our future, this future day of the Lord where God would finally and forever save his people, but also finally and forever pour his wrath upon his enemies. But what Isaiah does to show that God will be good for the future day of the Lord is he gave a near term down payment. So in Isaiah 13 verses 17 through 22, Isaiah explains what God would do to the Babylonians at the hands of the Medo-Persian Empire, which happened in 539 BC. And the destruction of that Babylon in those days, in 539 BC, was a foreshadowing of what God would do to a new rebuilt Babylon in the future day of the Lord. That's how the prophets often work. They would use a near and a far, a near in their day, but a far still in our day, the near was a foreshadowing of the fall. Okay, now turn your Bibles if you have Bibles, and I hope you have them with you. Um, open them up, if you will, to Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. What I want to do is read a little bit more of this passage so you get the context and you see that this is a worldwide cataclysmic judgment. Because when you see that, when you see that, yes, this is the future day of the Lord, and you connect that to the Odin, the labor pains, you'll know that when Jesus is using that same expression, he's referring to the day of the Lord too, and it can't therefore be the church age. 
So again, I hope you turned your Bible to Isaiah 13, verse 9. We'll read through verse 11. Notice what he says, Isaiah 13, 9. Isaiah says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger. Stop there. Who's anger? Well, it's not the anger of human beings. It's the anger of the Lord. It's his wrath. Notice it says, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Notice the reference to the, the moon and the stars from heaven. It says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Now, notice verse 11. He says, thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Now, notice in verse 11 where he says, thus I will punish the world. The term for world there is tabel. Normally, if the Lord is speaking of the land of Israel or just the land generically, he can use Eretz. But here, Tavel is typically referring to the whole inhabited world. The reason I'm highlighting that here is I want you to see that what Isaiah is depicting is a worldwide judgment. Okay, it's not some local skirmish. Why? Because this is the global day of the Lord. Remember in Revelation 3.10, Jesus gave the great promise to the church at Philadelphia because they had kept his word. They were believers. He would keep them from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Notice in Revelation 3.10, it's a worldwide judgment. And the, the design of that judgment is to test those who dwell upon the earth. That phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, occurs eight times in the book of Revelation. Each time, it's a reference to only unbelievers, okay? So my connection that I want you to see is that Revelation 3.10 promises exemption for believers from a universal judgment that will come upon the world the day of the Lord. Isaiah is describing that same time period. It's a global judgment that comes upon the world, and he describes it, notice on the screen, as the day of the Lord. And how does he refer to it as? Odin labor pain. The same term that Jesus uses to summarize the first events within the 70th week of Daniel. Again, what is Jesus referring to? He's referring to the 70th week of Daniel or the day of the Lord. He's not referring to the church age. Okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these in sequential order. However, I'm going to skip Matthew 24 because I want to come back to that. I want to go to 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Paul would have written this about 30 years after Jesus gave his Olivet Discourse. Notice what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5. We are in verses 2 through 3. Notice what he says. He says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, one thing I want you to notice right away is notice that phrase, the day of the Lord. Does everyone see that in the box? What's interesting is if you go back just three verses or four verses back into 1 Thessalonians 4, and remember there was no, the, the chapters and verses were added about 400 years after the New Testament was written, okay? So the chapter and verses are not given to us by the Spirit. I want you to realize that just four verses earlier, roughly three or four, Paul is talking about the rapture. Then he uses a peri day. Now concerning the day of the Lord, 
Notice the day of the Lord, therefore, is connected to what? It's connected to the rapture. Back in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, just three or four verses earlier, he's talking about the rapture. Now he's talking about the day of the Lord. Why? Because the rapture is the beginning of the day of the Lord. Now we're starting to put our data together. Now notice he says the day of the Lord will come just like a thief. Does everyone see the term thief there? What's very interesting is there's only two uses of thief or robber in the New Testament, and there was two different terms. One term was lace taste. Lace taste had to do with a robber or a thief that would use force to get what he wants. He would bludgeon you over the head with a hammer or some club or something. That's the lace taste. But there was a kleptase where we get our term for kleptomaniac, someone who can't stop stealing. The kleptase was a thief that used stealth. They weren't going to hurt you. They just wanted to steal your stuff. And so they would do it in a stealthy way. Well, the term that's used here is kleptase, having to do with stealth. The idea of the day of the Lord coming like a thief is that there's no warning. Very interestingly, Jesus refers to the rapture in Matthew 24, 40 through 41. And he says that that comes like what? Like a thief. Well, follow me and the logic. If the rapture comes like a thief and the day of the Lord comes like a thief, well, then the rapture has to be at the very beginning of the day of the Lord, because if one preceded the other, one would fail to come like a thief. Are you with me? Okay, now we're starting to put our data together. All right, now notice here, Paul's connecting the thief-like coming of the day of the Lord. Notice he says it comes suddenly. It's not going to be any warning to it. Why is there going to be no warning? Because there's no signs in the church age to tip you off. If there were signs, it wouldn't come like a thief. Uh, what thief says, hey, by the way, I'm around 1205, you know, right after five minutes after midnight, I'm going to come. You look for me with a blue car. No, they don't tell you those rascals. And that's the problem with these thieves. They're not polite. They won't let you know when they're coming, right? Otherwise, you'd have your loaded shotgun, you'd have your tuna fish sandwich, and you'd have 911 in the speed dial. You'd be all ready to go. But the fact of the matter is they don't let you know. They come suddenly like a thief. Now, when they come, notice Paul says it comes like Odin, labor pain. Where did Paul get all of his teaching? 11 terms from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 come from the Olivet Discourse. Why is that important? It is absolutely inconceivable. I, I sound like that guy in Pr uh, Prince's Bride there. Inconceivable that Isaiah, Jesus, and Paul are using labor pains in an unrelated way. They're all talking about eschatology. And they're therefore all referring to the day of the Lord. Why is that important? Because when you see Jesus use the same term that the Apostle Paul is, he must be referring to the day of the Lord as well. When Jesus is using the same term Isaiah is, Odin, labor pains, he must be referring to the day of the Lord as well. Now, where do we see Jesus use this? Well, he uses it in the opening verses as he describes the signs in the Olivet Discourse. Sorry, I've got some of my verses up here so that I can actually read them to you. There we go. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. Let's read now Jesus' answer. What are the signs? He's answering the second question first. What are the signs? It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes 
but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pain. Now, what I want you to see is I want you to see several indicators here for where Jesus is clearly alluding to what we see in Revelation chapter six. Notice, first of all, he says that many will come and say that they are the Christ. If you read Revelation chapter six, the very first seal, which is the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, it talks about the Antichrist coming on the scene of history. Remember this, the Antichrist comes from a coalition of 10 other false Christs that are vying for power, according to Revelation chapter 17, according to Daniel chapter seven, according to Daniel chapter two. Okay, so whereas Jesus focuses on the many, John focuses on the one, but the idea is that you can't fall for any false Christ. Okay, so that's the opening seal in Revelation chapter six, verses one through two. But notice Jesus talks about wars. Notice it says, you'll be hearing of wars and the rumors of wars. Now, many people will say, hey, that's the church age. We've seen tons of wars. You haven't seen wars like you're gonna see in the opening days of the 70th week of Daniel. The worst war that we ever had in the history of the planet was World War II. And that's hard to even think about because in World War I, that was known as the war that was to end all wars. In the Battle of the Somme in World War I, they lost 60,000 men in one day. In one day. In one day. And World War II was even worse than that. We lost 3% of the Earth's population. But do you know, according to the fourth seal and the opening judgments of the 70th week of Daniel, from sword, which is war warfare, pestilence, famine, and wild beasts, we're going to lose a fourth of the Earth's population. That's eight times worse. And that's why these function as signs, because they're so egregiously bad. Okay. Now, I want you also to notice that he talks about famines. This is a reference to the third seal. So Jesus is just following the very seal judgments, Revelation chapter 6, in the opening days of the 70th week of Daniel. Now, notice when he gets to that, he also talks about earthquakes. Now, the earthquakes that he's referring to aren't just any earthquakes. It's the earthquake of the sixth seal in the book of Revelation, where in Revelation chapter 6, I think it's verse 12 on to the end of the chapter, it talks about earthquakes that are so bad. In verse 14, it literally says that you'll have mountains and every island will be moved from its place. So that's how the earthquakes function as signs because it's so global and they're so bad. Okay, now when Jesus is describing all four of these things, notice he says they're birth pangs. What did birth pangs mean in Isaiah 13, 8, the day of the Lord? What did it mean in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, where Paul was borrowing it from Christ's own teaching? It was about the day of the Lord. Is Jesus describing the church age or is he describing the day of the Lord? He's describing the day of the Lord, the time of God's wrath. If the church age is the time of God's wrath, again, then God hasn't exempted us from his wrath and he's a liar because in fact, he's promised that he would exempt us. Romans 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Revelation 3.10. All right. Now, let me go on then and just show you one more thing. I want you to see these timing indicators regarding the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24.5, Jesus talked about false Christ. That's what you see, Revelation 6, 1 through 2, the very first seal. Matthew 24.6 through 
through seven, he talks about wars, not just any wars, but wars that lead to the death of 25% of the planet, along with the accompanying famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. That's because the society is so broken down from the warfare. So that's the second seal, Revelation 6, 3 through 4, the taking of peace from the earth. Matthew 24, 7, famine. That's the third seal, Revelation 6, 5 through 6. Finally, Jesus mentions earthquakes. That skips down to the sixth seal, Revelation 6, 12 through 17. But still, this is all part of what? It's the beginning of labor pains. It's the day of the Lord. Okay, that's what Jesus is referring to. Now, I want to focus a little bit more on these earthquakes just to show you Jesus isn't just talking about any normal earthquakes. Listen to what he says. And again, in verse 14, it literally says, I, I couldn't fit it all on the screen, but Revelation 6, 14, it says that every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. Okay, has anyone ever heard of an earthquake that moves every mountain on the planet and every island, every pas, it's in the Greek, it's all, every one, from its foundations, from its where it was? Anybody ever heard of an earthquake that bad? Well, that's why this functions as a sign because these are unusually bad. In fact, so bad is it, notice even the unregenerate get it in their noggin that, hey, you know what? This is the wrath of God. It even dawns on them. Notice they're, they're so terrified. It says, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Stop there. Even the unregenerate at the sixth seal, the opening phase of the labor pains, the beginning of the day of the Lord, the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, they realize that this is the wrath of God. In fact, notice in verse 17, very importantly, it says, for the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand. Notice in the box there, that phrase, it's actually a verb of erkamai. It's an aorist active indicative of erkamai. So the verb erkamai means to come. But the aorist indicative has to do with things that are typically in the past if it's in the indicative mood, and it is here. Why is that important? Because what it says is that even the unregenerate have realized that what they're experiencing and all the things that they've seen before this in the first, second, third seals, et cetera, they even know that this is the very wrath of God. So the book of Revelation is giving you an indicator that the wrath has come in the opening judgments in Revelation chapter six. When does the wrath have come? the wrath of God come, it comes during the day of the Lord. What phrase did we see Isaiah use for the day of the Lord? Odin, labor pains. What did Paul use referring to the day of the Lord? Odin, labor pains. What does Jesus say the opening signs would be like in Matthew 24? He said that they were the beginning of Odin, labor pains. This is the day of the Lord. Can Jesus be any clearer? Okay, now, we may not see the data, we may be ignorant of it, but Jesus was very clear that he's not talking about things in the church age. He's talking about the day of the Lord. Okay, now let's move on to our second indicator that these signs are within the 70th week, and that is the tribulation period. What I believe now Jesus does is in verse 8, he's talked about the first three and a half years. Now he begins to talk about the last three and a half years, and I'll explain why. Notice Matthew 24, 9 through 14. He's just given us a great big overview of the entire 70th week. He says, then they will deliver you, that would be the Israelites, to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name, 
At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. I want you to notice that this term tribulation, that is used in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, referring to that last three and a half years in which the Antichrist will persecute the nation of Israel. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Again, J Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Daniel actually uses in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation, it uses the term philipsis, same term here, for tribulation. Now, I'm going to talk about this tribulation period in Daniel 12, 1. Let me read that to you. It says, now at that time, that's in the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, it says, Michael, the great prince, that's the archangel, who stands guard over the sons of your people, that's Israel, he will arise. And there will be a time of distress such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Notice that phrase where it says, Daniel 12, 1, that distress such as never has been seen since there was a nation until that time. That's describing the worst time period ever. Do you know what? Jesus is going to borrow almost word for word that phrase in Matthew 24, 21, as he further describes the great tribulation period. Now, why is the last three and a half years the time period in which Israel's put to tribulation? Because they had a covenant with Antichrist. So remember, when you get to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the Israelites have a covenant for the first three and a half years with Antichrist. So the wars in the first three and a half years are in the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles. But what happens is, remember, the Antichrist, he breaks the covenant at the three and a half year mark. He sets himself up in the temple, the lawless one. Remember, Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians 2. And after he sets himself up in the temple as God, he starts persecuting the Israelites. This is why in Daniel 7.25, Daniel revealed that the Antichrist would wear the saints down, that is the Israelites, for 1,260 days or time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. That's the time period that's being referred to here. This is why, uh, turn your Bibles, by the way, to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, verses 5 through 6. This is why in Revelation 12, God has to bring the Israelites into the wilderness, the final time. Why? Because he has to save them again. It's the last exodus of all, because if he doesn't save them from the Antichrist, they would certainly all die. Just as he rescued them from Pharaoh at the first exodus, he rescues them one last time in the final exodus and brings them into the wilderness. Where do we see that? We see that in Revelation 12, 5 through 6. Turn your Bible there. Bible's there. Revelation 12, verses 5 through 6. It talks about this male child who is the, the Messiah, but the woman here that flees is Israel. Notice it says, Revelation 12, 5, it says, and she gave birth to a son. That's Israel giving birth to the Messiah, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So there we know, that's the Messiah. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension. But then notice verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so this is Revelation 12, 6, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's the 
last part of the 70th week of Daniel, the last three and a half years, the tribulation that Jesus is now referring to. When the Antichrist turns his attention towards the hatred of the Jews one last time. All right. So when in verse 13, Jesus is referring to the end, but those who endure to the end, he's not talking about the end of the church age. What is he referring to? He's referring to the end of the 70th week, the one who endures. They're going to be saved. Why? Because Messiah comes and brings his kingdom. So what I want you to understand is that when you get to verse 14, Jesus has given you an overview. The first, remember at verse 8, he talked about the beginning of birth pains, Odin, labor pains. That's the first three and a half years. Now from verse 9 to 14, he's swept through the last three and a half years. So he's given you an overview of the entire 70th week. Now what he does, by way of recapitulation, recapitulation is where an author will all of a sudden back up. Okay, so let me explain what recapitulation is. The very next verse, Matthew 24, 15, that's our third timing indicator. Notice my diagram down here. Think about this being the church age. From here to here is the last seven years. The midpoint here, the three and a half year mark where the Antichrist performs the abomination of desolation, that's here. Okay, what Jesus has described in Matthew 24, 4 through 8 is the beginning of the birth pains, the beginning of the day of the Lord, or the first three and a half years. Okay. What he does in Matthew 24, 9 through 14 is he brings you from the midpoint all the way to the end. And the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. But by way of recapitulation, now he brings you back to the midpoint again. So he's going from the end back to the midpoint. And he says, notice, therefore. In fact, the conjunction that's used there is to draw an inference. Okay, so now Jesus wants you to go back to the midpoint, go back from the end, back to the midpoint. And he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And what he goes on to say is, hey, if you're in Judea, you have to flee to the mountains. Why? Because that's the beginning of the great tribulation where the wrath of the Antichrist will be poured out trying to murder every Jew on the planet. And that's why they end up fleeing into the wilderness. Okay, according to Revelation chapter 12. Okay, so let's ask ourselves the question, where is the abomination of desolation? Is that in the church age? Your ones, no. So why do we have prophecy conferences where people say, hey, I was looking at a newspaper the other day and I saw earthquakes and I saw this and I saw that and that must be something in the church age. Well, you know what? Jesus wasn't describing events within the church age. Why? Because the abomination of desolation is at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. He couldn't be any clearer. Now, again, we can be confused as readers, but let's realize that the scripture has been very clear all along from the beginning of Matthew 24, 4. When Jesus starts answering the question, what are the signs? He's been in the 70th week of Daniel all along, and he's given us major clues that we should see it. Now, what he's going to do from Matthew 24, verse 16, right after the abomination at the midpoint, all the way to verse 20, he's going to bring you again through the great tribulation. Okay, so let's read that. Hope you have your Bibles open. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24, 16 through 20. Please turn your Bibles there. I want to read to you so that you see that, yes, all these things are part of the Great Tribulation. Matthew 24, 16 through 20. Let's read that together. Now, you don't have to read it out loud. I'll read it for you, but follow along. Matthew 24, 16 through 20. Notice it says, then those who are in Judea, right after they see the abomination of desolation in the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, it says, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Stop there. 
What does that mean? What are we to do if we're in Minnesota? Are we to flee to Buck Hill? That's my old joke. Well, no, because we're not going to be here if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So notice this is Israel-centric. Um, you'll notice he'll reference the Sabbath. Now, why is it so Israel-centric? Because in mass, they're the ones who haven't believed in the Messiah. The Gentiles will be brought in during the church age. Yes, there'll be some Jews too. But the emphasis in the 70th week of Daniel is the salvation of Israel. That one day all Israel will be saved, as Paul said in Romans eleven twenty six. And so that's why he talks about those who are in Judea. He doesn't say, hey, those in Moscow, you do this. And those who are living in Burnsville, you do this. And no, it's those who are in Judea. You're to flee to the mountains. Verse 17, he says, whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Verse 18, he says, whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But he says, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, but pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Now, what nation abides by a Sabbath? I took a trip to Israel in the year 2008. And if you were on a Sabbath day, if you were there during a Sabbath day, you could not get gasoline. Okay, it was very difficult to travel. You had to make sure you got everything prepared before the Sabbath. You have that problem in any other country? No. It's Israel that still abides by the Sabbath. Now, why is that an issue? Because what I'm showing you is this is Israel-centric. If the first 69 weeks of Daniel's 70th week, 70 weeks prophecy was about Israel, what do you think the last seven years are about? It's about Israel. Now, how is that a blessing to us? Because we can see as Gentile believers living during the church age that God is going to fulfill all of his promises. Because you and I are going to be partakers of this kingdom too. So what I want you to see at this point, then all the way to verse 20, in Matthew chapter 24, we're in the 70th week of Daniel. He's just bringing us through the last three and a half years. Now, let me bring you to our fourth timing indicator. And this is very powerful because it has to do with the worst time period ever. Notice what Jesus says, Matthew 24, 21 through 22. He says, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. This verse 21 that I have bolded, read, I couldn't make it any stand out anymore. It's that significant. Notice Jesus is saying that such a time has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. That's exactly what Daniel 12, 1 was describing, the worst time period ever. When is it? The last three and a half years of Daniel 70th week. Now, again, you can't have a worstest. There's only one worst time period. And you have to ask yourself, if you're going to be a good exegete of scripture, is the worst time period during the church age? Or is the worst time period during the tribulation period in the 70th week of Daniel? I think it's obvious it's the latter. Because if the worst time period occurred now in the church age, then there would be nothing worse in the tribulation period. Are you with me? So obviously Jesus is describing the last part of the 70th week of Daniel. That's the great tribulation. In fact, so bad is it? Notice verse 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of the Israelites and those believers during that time, the total length of this tribulation period was limited to seven years. The last part of it limited to three and a half. If it had gone any longer, nobody had lived through it. That's how bad this time period is. Again, what Jesus is describing is clearly, dear ones, not the church age, but the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week 
Jacob's great distress, as it's referred to in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Okay, so that's our fourth timing indicator. Have you seen anything that indicates the signs Jesus has been talking about has been in the church age yet? No. In fact, it's been devastatingly, overwhelmingly pointing to the 70th week of Daniel. It's not a close call. And for someone to say, well, no, these things are happening during the church age, wake up and smell the coffee. Okay, you're left out and you're like a, you're like an Indy or a Volkswagen trying to merge into the Indy 500. Okay, you're not bringing the, your A game, right? Jesus is describing the events within the 70th week of Daniel. That's what he's trying to show us, right? Okay, so let's get to the fifth indicator that this is all within the 70th week of Daniel. Let's show that one. This is very exciting. Notice Matthew 24, 29 through 30. Now, by the way, you notice I skipped some verses. In those verses, Jesus talks about not being deceived. That during that time period, there's going to be many false Christs. Remember, the Antichrist comes from a coalition of 10 others the 10 horns. So there's going to be many false Christs, many people claiming that they are him. Jesus says, don't listen to him. Okay. So then when you get to this final part, remember when you get to verses 32 through 35, it's the parable of the fig tree. So this is the final part from 29 to 31. Notice Jesus says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, stop there. Stop there. Notice he says immediately, there's no intervening time period. And it's after the tribulation of those days. If you fill in that phrase, those days, with the church age, the age that we're living in now, if you think Jesus just described all the signs that he's talked about are within the age we're living in, again, you're going to be in left field. You're going to have no clue about eschatology. But if you look carefully, as we did today, at the data and see that Jesus clearly referring, he couldn't be any clearer that he's referring to the 70th week of Daniel, then you know the tribulation of those days is the 70th week of Daniel. And what happens at the end of that? Well, notice now what's described is from Joel 2.31 and Joel 3.15, the final battle of the nations surrounding Jerusalem. He says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Stop there. When you look at all caps, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That's described in Joel chapter 3, verse 15, where God brings all of the nations against Jerusalem. He brings them to a valley called Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat literally means Yahweh Shofet. That's what it is. Shofet is judge, Yahweh is God. It literally means Yahweh is judge. Isn't it interesting? Jesus' name, Yeshua, means Yahweh is salvation. It's interesting to note because people reject Yahweh is salvation, Jesus, at the end, they're going to be brought to this final battle where Yahweh is judged. That's the battle that Jesus is describing where all the nations will be judged it's also synonymous with the Battle of Armageddon. That's where it begins, but it culminates in Jerusalem. Notice what happens. Verse 30 says, and then the sign of the Son of Man. Stop there. The Son of Man, that's the greatest sign of them all. The Son of Man himself coming. Why does Jesus use the phrase Son of Man? Because that's how he's referred to in Daniel 9.13, or excuse me, Daniel 7.13, the one who's going to rule upon the earth. Notice the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky. That's a reference right here in all caps to Daniel 7, 13, where the Messiah will reign for the Lord because he is the Lord upon the earth. Now, Jesus has given us a lot of signs, but that's the coup de grace, that the son himself will be in the sky with his saints. You see the same thing described in Revelation 19, he comes with the saints at the end of the 70th week, destroys his enemies, and he sets up his kingdom. 
Now, let me show you a really important reference that we understand continuing on verse 30 to 31. Notice he comes with power and great glory. Notice verse 31, it says, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Many people talk about this great trumpet and they think that it refers to the trumpet of the rapture and it does not. Now, why am I so confident it does not refer to the rapture? There's only one place in the entire Old Testament where the phrase gadol shofar is used. Gadol is great, shofar is trumpet. There's only one verse in the entire Old Testament where great trumpet is mentioned. There's only one. It's Isaiah 27, verse 13. Do you know what Isaiah 27, 13 is about? Well, let's read it together. Let's read Isaiah 27, verses 12 through 13. Let's read that together. And then what I'm going to do in a couple of minutes is I'll pause and we'll do some questions and answers. Isaiah 27, verses 12 through 13. Listen to what it says. This is all about the ingathering of Israel into their kingdom. That happens after the final battle. Why? Because Messiah's come. He's destroyed all the enemies and he's going to set up his kingdom. Isaiah 27, 12 through 13, it says, In that day the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the great brook of Egypt. Stop that. Why the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt? Why that? Because those were the dimensions of Israel given to Abraham in Genesis 13 and Genesis 15. Do you know that the largest dimensions of Israel that were ever actualized in history was under Solomon and David? But it was never to that extent. It never went from the Euphrates, the borders of Israel, to the, the Nile River in Egypt. Never did. But one day it, it will. That's going to be the extent of promises that God had given to Abraham. So it says, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. Verse 13. Notice Isaiah 27. It will also come about in that day that a great trumpet. Notice what it says. Great trumpet. But I say again, great trumpet. Ding, 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 ding. Only time in the entire Old Testament, great trumpet is used, Isaiah 27, 13. Notice it will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria, that is the Jews who were scattered there, or those who were scattered in the land of Egypt, they will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. This is about the ingathering of the Israelites to the kingdom. But he's going to gather them from the four winds, and he's going to bring them into the glorious kingdom at the end of the 70th week. Dear ones, the rapture will be mentioned when we get to Matthew 24, verses 40 through 41. But Jesus here isn't talking about the beginning of the 70th week. He's talking about the end. And he's talking about the ingathering of the Israelites into their kingdom, not the rapture of the church. Okay, it's very clear. Now, let's end off here. I'll talk about the parable of the fig tree next time. Dear ones, what you can clearly see is that all five timing indicators through all of the signs that Jesus gives, they're all events in the 70th week of Daniel, the final one being at the very end, the final battle and the ingathering of Israel to her kingdom. Then why are we concerned about certain events that may or may not be happening today? Like, for example, someone says, hey, earthquakes are on the rise. That must be what Jesus is talking about. And so our prophecy conferences look like a bunch of people with newspapers out, but our Bibles are put away. And the problem with that is people start making rash decisions. Well, I'm not going to get the mark of the beast because after all, well, the mark of the beast, you're not going to be for that. You're there for that. That's something that happens within the 70th week of Daniel. Or someone will say, well, you know what? I'm really concerned because Russia, hey, Paul wasn't concerned. 
was Russia even in existence under Vladimir Putin in the Apostle Paul's day? And he believed that he could be part of the rapture, that the Lord could come in his day. He wasn't waiting for any signs for the rapture of the Lord. Remember, he said, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. He could have possibly been in the rapture. He believed that. And he's an apostle who speaks for Christ. Brothers and sisters, the signs in the Olivet Discourse are all within the 70th week of Daniel. All of a sudden, when you get to Matthew 24, 36, Jesus is going to say, hey, when does the whole 70th week come? And I'll say, you can't know. Because the beginning of the 70th week is where the rapture happens. And you can't know when the 70th week of Daniel breaks forth. The parable of the fig tree is simply a parable that says, hey, when you see the signs within the 70th week, you know that he's near. In fact, he's right at the door. Okay, with that, let me open it up to some questions. We'll go for about 20 minutes or as long as you want. I'll close, um, I know, by 8.20. Uh, but I'll open up to comments or questions at this time. For those who um, haven't used the Zoom before, there's a button called mute. And if there's a line through it, it means your microphone is off. If you click on it, then it will allow you to talk. But after you're done, please remute yourself. Okay, thank you. All right, let's see. I'll try to find some. Yeah, this is Norm. Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you, Norm. You know, we can't look at what we see going on in the world to know when the rapture is. Is, is there anything that we can conclude when we see so many bad things happening in our country and the world? Is, can we draw any conclusions from that at all? Yeah, you know, it's interesting you point that out. You know, I know, um, I remember Mark Hitchcock gave the analogy of someone who was in a coma in the hospital. And when they woke up, they found out that Thanksgiving had not happened. And yet they saw the Christmas decorations out. And because they knew Thanksgiving had not happened and the Christmas decorations were out, they knew Thanksgiving had to be really soon. And the point is, is there in the same way you and I are living before this imminent event, which can occur at any moment, Thanksgiving. But in the same way, we see the Christmas decorations set up, the events like we can say, hey, I can see how the Antichrist is gonna attract people. I can see how no one will be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. I see that technology could come about and is in place and these things are viable. They can actually do what we've read about in the book of Revelation. So I think we can say, yes, every day that we get, we go by, we're getting closer and closer. What I'm simply saying is think about Paul's day. He believed at any moment he could be part of that rapture. So what I wanna do is have everyone focus on the data of the New Testament rather than our newspapers. Because think about people who lived during the 30 years war. Um, they thought that they were in the last days and yet centuries go by. Uh, you have people that are in World War I. They didn't think it could in, get any worse. People in World War II, they had atomic weapons unleashed on them. Um, you had people, 70 million alone that died under the communists in China. You know, uh, think about the people who live in North Korea. Every day is a great tribulation to them. It's a virtual concentration camp. So my point is, what we don't want to do is be deceived into thinking, well, because things are getting bad for us in America, 
therefore the Lord must come within a certain few years. No, it's always at hand. He could come within the next five seconds or it could be another 500 years. It is always at hand. That's the idea. So yeah, I, that's just what I, I want just, to cultivate in people's minds. Yeah, it, it's just, it, it seems so common when you talk to Christians these days, they say, well, we must be getting close. Just look at all the things yep. going on. It, but uh, I, I thank you for uh, explaining that the way you did tonight. Yeah, no, great question, Norm. Thank you. Very good. Anybody else? By the way, my, my goal next time, um, I would love to find out from those of you who would like to have this, the second part of this, we'll, we'll get into the rapture. We'll start getting to verse 36 on, and I'll be showing you where Jesus actually does talk about the rapture, and I'll prove it to you. It's actually very beautiful in Matthew 24, 40 through 41. And the reason I would like to cover that next Wednesday night, I know it's close to Christmas. I think it's the 23rd if I, if I got my dates right, or the 22nd. But the reason I would like to cover it is because I'm going to tie that hope of the rapture from next Wednesday into our Christmas message next, not this coming Sunday, but the following Sunday. And uh, I think you'll find it very beautiful. You'll see that the rapture actually is taught by Jesus in Matthew 24, 40 through 41, and it is beautiful. And once you see the whole picture, it's actually a very a beautiful picture. It's better than most of us even realize. So I would love to teach that next Wednesday if people would still like to do this one more time before Christmas. Anybody else got any comments or questions? I guess just, um, I'm also surprised as I get go stronger in faith that people are so concerned about when the rapture is like suddenly they're going to pick up and do something for Christ at that just before they get raptured versus thinking they could die any day and that they should be going out and talking about him and living for him every day. Now, it doesn't matter when the rapture is, really, because we could die at any moment. Yeah, amen. Well said. Yeah, the death rate is one per person. It, you know, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed once for a man to die, then after that comes judgment. And you're right. Um, what's interesting, Mary, um, Nancy, is that the Bible does depict the great hope of the rapture and the coming of Christ is something that should motivate us for godly living. For example, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus used the term gregareo or be alert. It's the same term that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5, that we are to be alert. And the, the rapture, the imminent rapture is to be a motivating factor, but you're right, it's not the only motivating factor. Um, but again, we should really cultivate that idea of imminence in our minds, that this really is a signless event that could break forth tonight. Um, it could break forth tomorrow. For those that believe that certain signs have to occur first, it's not an imminent event. I remember Mark Hitchcock, many of you have heard him in various uh, prophecy conferences. I like him a lot. And he had a, a poem, I don't remember it all, but I remember part of it. He talked about sad day, sad day for those who believe that signs had to occur first because he said, for the Lord can't come today. Okay, but for those who say, hey, no, this is a signless event. There's nothing to tip us off. It's gonna come suddenly like a thief in the night. It really is a blessed hope that perhaps tomorrow morning is the day that I'm going to see my Lord and Savior, and, and so will you. And so that's the idea that I want to cultivate is that, yes, it's this constant expectancy for the Lord, um, not just because I want to do better in my life, but because I know that the anguish and the hardships and the death and the destruction and all of the pains and anguish today that we see, they're going to be gone. And it makes, it makes living tolerable, as it were. 
okay? So that's uh, something that the New Testament really does throw out there. That's why it's called our blessed hope. It's not the blessed curse. If you're going to meet the Antichrist, I call it the blessed curse. But because you're going to meet Christ at the rapture, at the twinkling of an eye, that he's promised in John 14, remember, he's going to go and prepare a place for you. And he's going to receive you to himself. Harlem Bono, he's going to bring you to the Father's home. I tell you what, that's the blessed hope. And then think about your stomping grounds are, yes, in the New Jerusalem, seven-year party with the Lord. And then you come back to set up a millennial kingdom in which you will reign and rule upon the earth, after which you're going to get a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem will be your stomping grounds forevermore. I mean, wow, how exciting is that? And it all begins at the twinkling of an eye with the rapture of God's people. And so that, that should be a motivating factor, but you're right. Nancy, it's not the only one. Very, very good comment. Anyone else? This is Christy. I have a question. Did you say that the new heavens and the new earth are a part of the day of the Lord? They are. They are. And the way we know that, Christy, is in 2 Peter 3.10, it's interesting. Peter uses the same terminology both Jesus and Paul does concerning the day of the Lord comes like a thief, he says. But what's interesting in 2 Peter 3.10, he also talks about in which the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. Well, we know from when we look at the book of Revelation, the, the heavens and the earth as they are now will not be destroyed until after the millennial kingdom, after the thousand year reign. Right. Um, so between Revelation 20 and 21, that's when they're going to be destroyed. And that's why you have the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem. And so that's why, Revel, excuse me, uh, 2 Peter 3.10 is very pivotal and very important for us to see that the day of the Lord isn't a single day, that he conceives of it as coming like a thief, like the rapture, the 70th week of Daniel comes like a thief, but he extends it all the way to the destruction of the heavens and the earth. So it's a broad period of time, okay? And the reason I think that's important for us to understand is if we know the day of the Lord simply as the time where God saves his people finally and forever, I love using that term, and people may scoff at that a little bit, but I put some thought into that. So let me explain. When I say that he saves us finally and forever, the moment you're raptured and you're given your resurrected body, there's, you're never going to have any troubles again. Bob DeWay always says there's, there's no problem you may have that the rapture won't cure. The moment you're raptured, you're secure forever. You're always with the Lord. That's what he says. You'll forever be with the Lord, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. So the moment you're with Christ at the rapture, you're forever secure. But what happens at that point is the judgment just gets worse and worse and worse and worse for the enemies of God, culminating in the lake of fire forever in Revelation chapter 20. Okay, so for the people of God, it just gets better and better. For the enemies of God, it just gets worse and worse. But it really is forever. The wrath is forever and the salvation is forever. And it begins right at the rapture and it extends unto eternity. Finally, when you and I are in the new heavens, the new earth, you and I are going to use the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem as our stomping grounds. You remember where the unregenerate are? They're in the lake of fire. They're separated forever. Remember in the millennial kingdom, even the unregenerate will have to go up and meet the Lord and worship him in Jerusalem because in Zechariah 14, the nations that don't go up, the Lord doesn't send rain upon their land. Well, that can't be believers because we want to go up and worship him. Okay, so my point is, there's a big difference between the millennial kingdom where you still have the unregenerate stomping around, um, even though, yes, they'll be judged by the Lord then. 
but in the eternal states of the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, they're going to be locked away forever in the lake of fire. So that's why I say it begins at the, the rapture, your salvation forever, but the judgment begins there, which culminates in a forever judgment in the lake of fire for the enemies of God. So I hope, I hope that helps. Yeah, so there's no end then to the day of the Lord. Exactly. And by the way, Christy, I'm glad you brought that up because it also explains, I think, remember the structure of Revelation? You have seven seals. The seventh seal opens up to the six trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet opens up to the six bowls. And the seventh bowl opens up to, and it doesn't say, the seventh bowl opens and the idea is it goes on into eternity. That's part of the structure of the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, that the seventh bowl opens up and it's never done. Why? Because the wrath of God is never done upon his enemies. That's a deliberate structure by John himself under the inspiration of the spirit. So it shows us the eternal nature even there of the wrath of God upon his enemies. Absolutely. Thank you. That's so, very helpful. so Eric? Yeah. Then the rapture is the beginning really of the fraud day of the Lord, right? Amen. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Very good question. Yeah. It's, it's the broad day of the Lord. So that's why um, when we, we, we're going to find out the next time we're together from Jesus and all of a discourse after he describes the rapture, he says, it comes like a thief. Paul says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. And so does Peter. Well, if the day of the Lord comes like a thief and the rapture comes like a thief, again, they the rapture has to be the beginning of the day of the Lord. Otherwise, one would, if one came before the other, one would cease to come like a thief. That's the logic that I have. And again, the term for thief there, kleptes, it is a thief that relied upon stealth rather than a robber who the, would be lastes who used force to get what he wants. So further evidence that we're on good standing there. Yeah. Yep, that's right. That's right. Hey, Eric, I had a comment also. Yeah. And yeah. maybe it's three different uh, episodes. But when we think of the first coming of Christ as the infant, you know, it was at the proper time God sent his son, born of a yeah. virgin. Yeah. You know, I mean, that is a guarantee that this wasn't a surprise event. It was ordained by God. And then we look at his, um, when he rode into Jerusalem on land selection day, Everything was specifically ordained by God. And, you know, it's kind of like the rapture, too. It is such an important event, but we have no reason to doubt that it won't be just as God ordained and perfect as these other two events involving Christ's life. Amen. Absolutely. That's well said. Um, do you remember that passage in Acts where Peter commands everyone to repent? He says, so that the, the Lord may send the son from heaven for the restoration of all things. And the idea is that, well, wait a minute, I'm going to repent so that the Lord sends the son. I'm going to do something so that God's ordained time comes. But the idea in the New Testament is that there's a filling up, remember, of the total afflictions of God's people. There's a filling up of the total people that will be saved. And God knows that that day when it occurs. I remember Paul has that uh, phrase in the book of Colossians where he says, I fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And there was a lot of debate on that. Some people thought, well, maybe Jesus didn't finish all of the suffering necessary. Well, that's not what it's referring to. The afflictions, literally the term philipsis, the same term, tribulation of the Messiah, is a phrase that's associated with God's people. 
And the idea is that God knows in his foreknowledge, in his sovereignty, the total number of people that will suffer and the total amount of suffering that will occur. So I like to think of it as a bucket that's being filled. He also knows the total number of people that are his. And once those buckets are filled, he knows the exact moment that will occur and he sends forth the son. That's being depicted in the New Testament. That's some of the New Testament data that we see. So you're absolutely right. This day is known uh, by the heavenly father. Absolutely. And by the way, um, when it says in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Remember, Jesus has two natures and he can operate from either one. So Jesus, my favorite example of that is when he's in the boat, he's sleeping with the disciples. He's in the back of the boat. When the storm comes, he's really tired. And you might ask, well, wait a minute, does God get tired? No, but he's truly a man. He's 100% a man, also 100% God. And he operates through either nature. So at one moment, he can be asleep in the back of the boat. And the disciples are concerned. They say, aren't you concerned that we're going to perish? The next moment, he can say, peace be still, operating from his divine nature and calm even the winds and the sea. And so Jesus operates from either nature. That's why sometimes he can ask, where was she laid? Or remember, he asked uh, someone in the crowd touched him. He asked the question, who touched me? But then there's other times where, remember, he asked, uh, Peter, he says, do you love me? And remember, Peter says, Lord, you know all things, right? So we see both that in his divinity, he knows all things, but he can operate through either nature. And so he must have been operating from his human nature intentionally so as not to divulge or at least uh, not have to divulge the timing. He doesn't know as the human part of the sun. So anyway, something to think about there. We'll talk more about that next time. Yeah, but it is an ordained time. Amen. Well, if that's it, yeah. oh, I'm I sorry, keep going. <laughs> this is Barb Gretsch. Yeah, Barb. I'm a little bit confused about how to think of Israel during the 70th week. Yeah. So it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Yeah. At least part of it is. And do we look at it as God is angry at Israel for their unbelief and that he's pouring his wrath out on them? Or do we look at, at it as a time of God's salvation of his people? I, yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I think you can look at it as both. Um, it's one in which because people reject the Messiah today, they will suffer consequences. Um, today is the day of salvation, right? But at the same time, God is gracious. And um, to answer your question, do you remember in Daniel chapter nine, when Daniel prays and Gabriel comes and he gives the answer? Do you remember that passage where Daniel says in the prayer to the Lord, he says, your city and your people bear your name. And the point is, is that that tips us off at the whole 70th week, the 70 weeks of Daniel, they're all about Israel. And it isn't interesting that the church age is the bracket between this, the fulfillment of the first advent, which happened at the first 483 years or 69 weeks of years, and the future set last seven or 70th week, right? So we're living as Gentiles primarily who are believers 
in that bracket between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. And um, do you remember Jim Palmer, our old uh, elder, he used to say, hey, Eric, if this first 69 weeks of yours were about Israel, what do you think the 70th week is about? Yes, it's primarily about Israel. And so why is that the case? Because the vast majority of people being saved now, yes, there are Jewish believers, but the vast majority of people that are being saved today are outside of the land of Israel. They're Gentiles or Jews that aren't in Israel. But what's going to happen is that will switch in the 70th week of Daniel, where, yes, there'll still be some Gentiles saved, but the primary emphasis will be on the Israelites. And that's why they're going to be the focus of the Antichrist wrath. Now, is God using the nations and even the Antichrist for his purposes? Absolutely, he does. In fact, in Revelation 17, the Lord makes it very clear that he's using the nations and their wrath and their evil for his purposes, just like in Isaiah chapter 10. The Lord used the Assyrians, this wicked nation, as instruments of his own wrath. So we have to see everything within the 70th week is God's wrath. He uses it all. But even despite that, he's still saving his people, and he will save Israel and bring them to faith. So it's not a contradiction. It's just that God is so gracious, even though he's pouring out his wrath, he's going to bring his people through it. Okay? You and I, who have come to faith prior, we're going to be saved from it. We're never going to enter in. That's the promise of Revelation 3.10. The Israelites are going to be brought through it, right? You and I are saved from it. So that's a way to think of it, maybe, right? Okay. I hope that helps. Uh, so the Israel, the since the formation of Israel or following World War II, when Jewish people have regathered to Israel, yeah. And continue to do so. Do you see that as part of the regathering that's talked about in Isaiah or? No, I, I don't. Um, what's interesting is that great trumpet and the regathering that Jesus is referring to and that Isaiah 27, 12 to 13 is alluding to. It seems to be a supernatural one in which they are actually fucked up. And it's at that time. Remember, there's a reference to the Euphrates and also to uh, Egypt, the Nile. And that was the boundaries of the original Israel given to Abraham in um, Genesis 13, Genesis 15. And so that's what's being depicted is they're going to be brought from whatever nation they're in, and they're going to be brought back to this kingdom. But it's going to be a, like a supernatural ingathering. So I don't see that as something that's happening now. And the proof of that, I guess, is we see that it's at the end of the 70th week of Daniel where that final battle, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. That's that allusion to Joel chapter 3, verse 15, where you have that final battle of the nations brought to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is, I think, the Kidron Valley. It's in uh, Jerusalem. So my point is, that's where Jesus places that final ingathering, and it's when he's coming on the clouds. So I think that's where the ingathering occurs uh, supernaturally by the Israelites. Yeah. yeah. So what's interesting is in some sense, the 70th week of Daniel is bracketed by a gathering. The first is the gathering of the people of Christ to the Lord to go to heaven. And then it's an ingathering with the saints, with the people of Israel into the kingdom at the end. So the 70th week is bracketed by a gathering, one of the church and then one with the church, but also the people of Israel into the kingdom at the end. Hope, I hope that makes sense. Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah. Amen. Eric, I have a question. 
Yeah. Hi, this is Nancy. I just wanted, could you go back to 2413, where it says, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved? Yep. I know that can't be suggesting that our perseverance secures our salvation, because we know that scripture really teaches the opposite of that. So can you, can you just tell me again why it states it that way? Yeah, um, this idea of endurance, remember, we as uh, believers, we do persevere in the faith. So we're saved by faith alone, but true yeah. believers will persevere. And so the idea is that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, will remain in the faith and we won't depart. So this is referring to, again, people primarily in Israel who come to faith in the Messiah, and they're called to endure to the end of the 70th week. And one of the ways they have to endure is by not taking the mark of the beast, which would be very tempting to do. Now, as I say that, realize not taking the mark of the beast isn't something that human beings are able to prepare themselves up, uh, pre prepare themselves for. Think about like a, remember when you're a kid and you got to go up to bat, you got to kind of psych up, you got to face maybe a good pitcher, or um, you got to play some sport and you kind of got to, that, that, that's not the way we're going to refrain from taking the mark of the beast if, if you're a believer living during this time period it's by god's grace god graciously keeps his elect and so they really will endure in the faith but it's all by his power um, a great passage that teaches that is john 10 27 through 28 where remember he says um, um my sheep hear my voice i give them eternal life they shall never perish no one can snatch them out of my hand I and the Father are one. The Father is given to me is greater than all. I and my Father are one. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So we're being held firmly in his grip. But the idea is those who don't endure, those who don't persevere in the faith, it's evidence that they never belong. That's the idea. And so right. at the end of 2 Peter, that's why, remember Peter talks about the, the sow went back to its vomit, or I'm sorry, back to the, to the slop and the, the dog back to its vomit. Um, the point of it's a kind of an ugly parable, but or um, metaphor. But what Peter's referring to is these unclean animals showed who they truly were by doing what those types of animals do. And in the same way, unbelievers will show their true ugliness at some point where they will not endure, they will not be held in the grip, they will be allowed to perish, they will turn from the faith and obedience. So, a good way of maybe thinking about it is Judas turn from Christ. He never was a believer. He rejected Christ and he went to perdition. Peter was a true believer and he failed. He rejected Jesus too, but because he belonged, he was brought back. Okay, so he was kept by Christ's power. In the same way, those who falter during this time will be enabled sovereignly, powerfully by God to endure. They will remain in the faith to the end of the 70th week. That's how I would see it. So yes, God's elect will be kept by his power believing all the way to the end by hook or by crook god will bring that about by his right. by his power thank you yep. so, and, and by the way just one thing nancy to, to that is one of the things that god uses are his scriptures he uses tools and so the scriptures i think the scripture that you and i are studying tonight think about someday in this future time period there'll be a jew who'll be reading this and they say you know what i believe i'm gonna endure uh, I'm not going to take the mark of the beast. They will read this passage and they will endure because of it. You know, that's that's how powerful the word of God is. So 
Just as the word of God is used to take us out of sin, the word of God will be used in the future for someone in the 70th week of Daniel who truly believes and comes to faith during that time. And I believe that God will use it to enable them to endure. Okay, thanks. Yeah, great question. Eric, Peter here. Yeah. Can you make the distinction between the Battle of Armageddon and the Battle of Gog and Magog? Yeah, so I, I believe that the Battle of Gog and Magog is at the end of the, the uh, Millennial Kingdom. That's described in Revelation chapter 20. And um, one of the reasons I think the book of Ezekiel is referring to that same battle. So remember in Ezekiel, I think I'm wrong. It's chapter 38, 39, right in there. It talks about the battle of Gog and Magog. Well, one of the reasons I think Ezekiel is referring to the same battles because he uses the same terminology. But it also in that section of scripture in Ezekiel talks about a time period in which Israel will be dwelling safely. Well, the only time Israel will be dwelling safely isn't now. As you can tell, there's warfare now always. There will be also problems during the 70th week, obviously. But during the millennial kingdom, they will be living securely. Mm -hmm. So remember that final battle of Gog and Magog described in the book of Revelation chapter 20 is where there's going to be one final uprising where Satan unites the people who are still alive and not believers. And they will come, it says, on the broad plane of the land against the Messiah and his people. And it's the most lopsided battle of all time because the Messiah simply calls down fire and wipes them out. And then that's when he ushers in the white throne judgment and sentences them all, all unbelievers to the lake of fire. So the battle of Gog and Magog is at the end of the millennial kingdom. The battle of Armageddon is at the end of the 70th week prior to the millennial kingdom. So think about the battle of Armageddon is at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The battle of Gog and Magog is at the end of the millennial kingdom. That may be a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. I hope that helps, Peter. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess the, one of the questions I had, so then you said the Battle of Armageddon occurs in the Kidron Valley, just east of Jerusalem. The battle, yeah, that's where it'll culminate, yeah. Okay, and the Battle of Gog and Magog, is that in the Jezreel Valley, or where is that? You know, we're not told. Um, there's some different uh, topographical, geographical issues going on in the Millennial Kingdom, Um and we're not really told where that occurs. It just says that they come up on the broad plane of the land, if I remember correctly how it states it. So we're really not told where that occurs. But um, we do know that the Battle of Armageddon, if it begins in Megiddo, it will ultimately culminate in this battle around Jerusalem at the probably the Kidron Valley. Most scholars believe that that's where the Valley of Jehoshaphat was. And so what's being depicted is where all the nations around Jerusalem and that's uh, remember written about in Zechariah 14 where the Messiah comes down and he destroys the enemy surrounding Jerusalem that same battle is depicted in Joel 3 so Joel 3 Zechariah 14 Revelation 19 uh, Matthew 24 29 through 31 uh, they're all describing that same final battle surrounding Jerusalem yep and that would be the battle of Armageddon or you might call it um the Battle of Joel chapter three, or whoever you want to refer to it, but the Battle of Gog and Magog was after the thousand year millennial kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, good question.
Excellent. Well, I tell you, um, does anybody else have any comments or questions? Um, are you planning then next uh, Wednesday for sure to have the next class? I, I would if people want to do that. Um, and, you know, I would love to do that. And again, I would love to tie that message of the rapture and the great hope to our uh, subsequent Sunday message that I'll be giving about the joy of our salvation and the gospel. So next Wednesday, we'll, um, if everyone wants to do that, I would pick it up again at seven o'clock, same bat place, same bat channel, same bat time. And we will um, get into the next verses and we'll really end up covering the rapture and the beginning. When does the 70th week come? We'll show that no one can know that, but we'll tie it to the rapture and it, it's pretty exciting material. So I would love to do that, but let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters, and I thank you, Lord, for the love that they have for one another. Um, Lord, the love that they have for you all by your gracious power. Most importantly, we thank you, Lord, for your love for us, and that you will one day break through the clouds and bring us to glory and give us this glorious kingdom, that you will rescue us from the wrath to come and from the trials of this world. We thank you, Lord. I pray for perseverance and protection upon my brothers and sisters. Heal those who are still hurting with COVID and um, other viruses, Lord. Bring us all through this difficult time period together. In your precious name we pray. Amen.